Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who have cared for this land since time immemorial. I pay respects to elders past and present. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I've got amazing guests as always. A familiar voice, if you have been listening to Triple R today, Samira Farah, who, outside of her radio work, is a curator, has been working on a new curatorial project with Patrick Jonathan called 13 Years, and it explores the power of community and independent radio and provides a small window into black African political and cultural history in Sydney and Canberra during the 1980s and 1990s. And Samira brings these archives into conversation with contemporary political and cultural movements through artworks, sound, performances and events. I'm very excited to hear all about that. It is commissioned by West Space and it's opening up this Friday. A little bit later on in the show... I'll be joined by community lawyer Marissa John Pillai to speak about a new grassroots initiative that she's spearheading in her local community of Montmorency. Her and her team of locals share a common vision to collaboratively transform a former church and kindergarten into a thriving activity hub, and they are hoping that will help improve mental health and reduce social isolation in their local community by providing an open place for recreation and connection. All that is coming up. I do hope you can stay with me. Drawing from personal history alongside archival research and set against the context of immigration and anti-apartheid struggle, 13 Years is a new curatorial project by Samira Farah in collaboration with Patrick Jonathan and it forefronts black sonics within liberation and migration movements of the African diaspora. The exhibition explores the power of community and independent radio and provides a small window into black African political and cultural history in Sydney and Canberra during the 1980s and 1990s. I do have Samira in studio now who you might know from the score on Triple R, uh, joining me to talk all about it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It is a big week for you. I am so glad that you were able to make some time to come and chat about this incredible project. Samira, can you start by telling us, like, where did this project begin for you? This would have started about a decade ago when I met my current collaborator, Patrick Jonathan. Patrick Jonathan is a South African-born, he's born in Cape Town, um, radio broadcaster. He currently hosts a weekly show on Eastside, which is all about African, like his show called Dial Africa. It's all about like African music, jazz, all kinds of genres. But I met him 10 years ago when I first started doing African events. Um, I hosted it like a film night and he invited me onto his show which back then used to be on Wednesday mornings. It's now on Saturday afternoons. But um, yeah, I just really had a great time on his show and then obviously being curious, asking him about his life and then being really like, 
oh, wow, um, I should mention he would have then been in his 60s. And then just hearing him talk, I was just realizing that that was coming at a time when I was becoming really interested in African history here in this continent. Um, and we just kind of kept always in touch. And then slowly, the more I did African events, um, moved to Melbourne, obviously met Arich, our friend Arich, co-founded Still Nomads with her, which is a black African arts collective, started doing radio, etc. And then it just became this small idea in the back of my head that I wanted to revisit those early conversations with Patrick around his life when he moved here from South Africa, uh, when it was still under apartheid. And then, yeah, it's just become this thing that is going to become a much bigger project. It's actually the first little, I guess, working out of my own ideas on this. Hmm. It's an incredible project. It seems like a huge moving beast. It's got a, a really strong history behind it. I'm interested, you know, you said that you, you used to live in Sydney. Why Sydney and Canberra in that time period? Be- because that's what he was doing. So I think I should point out because I think sometimes when we see copy and text and um, particularly people might think that it's on uh, anti-apartheid struggles, etc. It is, but Everything that's in the exhibition in terms of the archival materials from PJ, Patrick, are all his. So we're really seeing something from his eyes and what he documented and what he photographed, which was for him Sydney and Canberra in particular. But there's there's actually also um, images from all around Australia. He was the tour manager in 1983 for a Jamaican artist named Peter Tosh. Um, so they toured him. It wasn't just him. It was just a whole collective, but he was a tour manager. They toured him around Australia. So there are photos of that tour, um, in Melbourne. I think he said they played Moomba back in the eighties and he also went to Adelaide. They went to Brisbane, etc. But yeah, but the main focus is obviously because he lived in Sydney. He still lives in Sydney. That part of his life that was quite focused on, um, the anti-apartheid, like struggle and movement here in Australia were predominantly Sydney and Canberra. I feel like I should give a little bit of context of what that was for him. Yeah. So PJ moved here in the late late 70s, I believe. Then um, very quickly him and a bunch of other South Africans, but also many other people, but for the context of just what I'm doing with 13 years, him and a bunch of other South Africans and non-South Africans joined various movements and organizations, created them, founded them, all with the specific aim of raising awareness of the apartheid regime back home for him. Um, There were a couple of things that he was a part of as a collective. One was a radio show called Africa Connections, which began in concept at Sydney University and 2SER before it found its home at Radio Skid Row, Mm -hmm. where it still exists, that radio show. It's it's one of the longest-running African programs in Australia. He was also part of um, a collective of people that hosted parties called African Nights. And then he was also part of like various media things. But the interesting about everything that he was doing and the collective was doing, it was always around raising funds and money Mm -hmm. to send back home to South Africa and Botswana and the uh, countries around it. Um, Things like building a safe house for uh, people escaping the regime, um, for fighters, when I say fighters, I mean, you know, activists against the regime, etc. So all of those events that he's bringing along were obviously Sydney and Canberra, which mm-hmm. is why the focus is on that. And then the audio pieces as well are all produced in Sydney. 
I'm interested, you know, you've obviously had a long-standing collaboration and relationship. What's it been like for you to go through these archives and figure out what to choose and and put into this show? Mm. Well, because this is like, even though I've been doing things for a long time, it's still nomads, doing things uh, by myself as a curatorial thing. This is my first one. And I started off really, really quite ambitious in 2019 when I had originally uh, been selected as a co-commission for West Space. But then the pandemic happened, which actually ended up being a little bit like good because it kind of forced me to scale it down. And then from the scaling down, I became more interested in other concepts like at, at the beginning, I was interested in, oh, what does this say about a particular time in Sydney and Canberra for African Australians? But since then, collaborating with him, going through the archives, also reading like counter arguments or like the way that people feel about the photographs, the way that people feel around being ex- not, not necessarily this exhibition, but what has happened to photos that are lost. Mm. Um, a lot of people don't know that a lot of these tapes are either lost or they're in the personal collection of people. And it's very hard um, to get a hold of them, which raises this really interesting thing I've been battling with who owns archives particularly when it's very small communities like the African-Australian community in Australia, who owns radio archives even, you know, if you host a show and it's your show, et cetera, but you do it at a particular station and then 25 years later, you're trying to get a copy of them, who actually owns it, right? It's all Mm. these very complex, blah, blah, blah type of things. But in terms of the actual pieces, we kept it simply to one, Peter Toshto, which was the 1980 tour that he did, um, mainly because PJ is the most proud of that tour. Mm. He's proud of his work. He's proud of what he did, not just him, but as a collective. But I'm going to keep saying him because I also feel like he deserves a bit of credit. Um, and then the other part is basically various fragmented photos and posters around the um, various other events that they hosted as part of the show. Mm. Yeah. And a big part from what I can, what you're saying and and kind of what I've read about it is that it is a celebration of independent radio in these places. But I also love that radio has played a big role in your life and yep. your kind of arts practice. Can you talk to that a little mm. bit? Yeah. So I started doing radio first here. I did training at 3CR and then I moved back home to Sydney. This was 2014 and did my master's in journalism, but I was mainly interested in broadcasting and then mainly existed. I like music music radio shows, et cetera, not so much political stuff. But then, um, yeah, just moving back to Melbourne, listening to things like 3CR or the ways that like, you know, Triple R or even PBS, I listen to a lot of radio and I also listen to a lot of international radio. I was really just interested in how radio functions as both this very accessible, um, not necessarily democratic, but people who don't necessarily get to be on mainstream radio can have a voice, right? And then it intersected with doing stuff with Still Nomads, the Black African Arts Collective, around how do black people use uh, mass communications mediums to get not just their point across, but also how do they form relationships to each other. Mm. And that's always been my main interest lately. Like how do black people form relationships with each other and how does that execute itself, whether it's radio, uh, parties, art events, etc. But then when I obviously started talking more to PJ, I was really interested in how for them these like you know exiled and not exiled black african people and other africans not just black african people radio was that way that they felt they could get this point across about the Mm anti-apartheid right i was just like this is really fascinating to me as someone who studied history at the university of sydney 
I don't remember reading much about black African people involvement in things. Mm-hmm. And that was like, okay, this is, this is going to be the point of this exhibition. It's not going to present this like story of radio. It's not, it's not possible. It's not going to st- present a story about the anti-apartheid struggle and movement. That is possible, but that's not my interest. It's simply going to look at this is one particular way a black African radio broadcaster who came from a country that went through a very brutal regime used radio and art to raise awareness. Mm. And you're also collaborating with uh, community broadcast platform Lossless Radio. It seems like a really integral yes. part of this project. Yes, excited. Can you tell me a little bit about that collaboration and, and what that means for them to be a part of it? Well, for me, it was very important because this the exhibition runs roughly, I think, about seven weeks. Um, to have the space being used and activated by others. Um, Lossless Radio are an amazing collective of people. Um, they are an online streaming uh, platform. They they started during the pandemic, I think, every Friday midday to at least 6 p.m., sometimes later, depending if they have um, special broadcasts. But I also knew that my friend who is um, one of the people over there, Lossless, Joe Miranda, shout out to Joe, um, who is black and British and from London. Me and him always talk about radio and our love for radio and the way that radio has impacted not just black people, but the way that black people have used radio. So I just say to them, hey, this is this thing. This is a space. I'd love for you to guys to use it however you want to use it. And since then, one of the things they're going to look at is black British pirate radio, which I knew very little about. I had assumptions. But even then, discovering that um, black pirate radio didn't actually come out immediately from... Um, I was I always assumed that it just came from an exclusion of black radical stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But then um, them doing their own research and coming back to me, it actually was all kinds of black music was not allowed to be played on UK radio up until the 80s, right? Like even the example they gave was Marvin Gaye was sometimes um, discussed as something that shouldn't be played, which is really funny. It's Marvin Gaye, right? It's, it's nothing really <laughs> politically radical about um, what he did. But yeah, so they're going to be doing a series of um, public events that looks at both Black British pirate radio. They're also looking at diaspora sounds. Um, but yeah, I love public programming as an art producer. I think public programming is the way that you, you know, connect to people, you get other people to think through the materials as well. And, um, I just like spaces to be used. (laughs) Mm, It's it's a great access point. If you have just joined us, we are chatting to Samira all about her big curatorial project called 13 Years. Uh, It is kicking off this Friday at West Space. I'd love to talk a little bit about the exhibition itself. You were just saying off air that it is accumulative over that time. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it is accumulative. So it opens on Friday and there'll be obviously PJ's work, like his um, photographs and posters and things from the 80s. There is also a video work by an artist called Khulet Abdulwasi, who's currently in Ethiopia. Um, which looks at the uh, housing estates in Melbourne. It's a really great moving piece. And then um, obviously there are the public events. So it's, it's, there are screens and there are projections. And the intention is that every week or every fortnight, more archival footage will be playing through the gallery. So what you see on Friday isn't going to be what you see seven weeks from now. Mm. Mainly because, one, I don't like to overwhelm people with because it's quite a lot of material to kind of view. But also I kind of like the idea 
that if we're looking at archival that kind of builds and you discover things and that's how it's had to be for me with the exhibition I had to look for things or even PJ you know this this is stuff from the 80s even though he's been in his house sometimes he's forgotten that he had a photo he had a poster and it's been a very cumulative finding of his own um, work like his stuff similar the exhibition will be the same like there'll be more stuff and Maybe I'll find something next week that I want to add to the exhibition. Yeah. So it's, yeah, a lot of video work and um, sound will come throughout the seven weeks. I love that. And is your hope that people can, I suppose, come in and out of the exhibition and each time they would, you know, see and learn different things? Yeah, um, definitely. I want them to see or learn different things. And I think before what I said about, like, access, I want it to... This, this is my own opinion as an art producer, right? I want spaces to always feel like they belong to people and it isn't this really quick way to enter a museum or a gallery or even a library. I think actually libraries are probably the best example. You always know at libraries you will get something else there. Similarly, thinking about galleries as like a moving, accumulative thing that always offers something, um, something new, maybe something they didn't know. Um, I also want people to kind of sit with it. So there's going to be like beanbags and there's a carpet area so people can kind of sit and listen to the audio. It's not a, mm. I mean, you can move in quickly if you want or you can stay. And then with the public programs as well, there's a reading group on Wednesday evenings where anyone can join. Um, yeah, I'm really interested as a as a art producer around how do we make spaces feel like they belong to people rather than making it feel like it belongs to me as the curator. I love that so much and I think just as a person that enters gallery spaces they can sometimes seem a little bit intimidating I think I don't know just for me but I think that's a really amazing thing to really implement in the planning process that it is um, the space of the people that you made it for. Yeah exactly and when you know when we're looking at work that like none of the work is mine they are work that belong to other people these people made work because they're interested in having other people view it. So then it's my job as the curator, art producer, to make sure as many people as that can possibly engage with it. I shouldn't, mm. I shouldn't close it off to the elite few people, you know, who know how to navigate a gallery. Mm. And there are so many different ways to experience what you offer for the public as well. Um, it's kicking off this Friday. It's very exciting. We've got Lossless Radio on Friday night. It's running for seven weeks. What do you hope uh, people that come through or come to any of the, the reading nights, what do you hope they kind of get out of, um, of this experience? So the reading group is on Wednesdays. It's public. It's called Winter in Winter, which is named after the Jamaican uh, essayist, novelist, um, Sylvie Winter. Um, it is, you do not have to read anything in advance. We're going to be reading together as a collective. Also shout out to the co-facilitators of this, like the, the ones who came up with the concept, um, Madeline Hodge and Amy Spears. We're going to collectively read one of her texts, um, each week a little bit. Um, and I'm hoping, yeah, that I've kind of missed in the pandemic, just kind of like reading groups and like being mm -hmm. out with people and just kind of intimate spaces like that. So I'm hoping they come for that. But also I should mention the thing I'm the most excited for is closing party because one that's going to be food um is going to be produced obviously by lossless because it's on the closing friday and is going to be looking at um carnival which is you know obviously um well it's everywhere in the world carnival a uh, caribbean festival but it, this one particularly will look at london it's going to be food it's going to be music it's going to be very very messy sorry to collingwood yards <laughs> but um yeah that's on yeah the last friday i'm excited about that one 
It sounds like a really incredible exhibition show curatorial project that you've put together. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You got me on my chaotic pre-opening, <laughs> but thank you so much. <laughs> no, I'm so glad I could nab you for just a, a little minute in, in what is a really hectic week. Um, writer, radio maker, cultural producer, arts producer, Samira. Um, we've just been speaking to all about her curatorial project called 13 Years. It does open this Friday at West Space and it's at the new Collingwood Yards. Highly recommend getting on down. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Since December last year, Marissa has been spearheading a grassroots effort based in Montmorency to save a former church and kindergarten from commercial development through neighbourhood organising and fundraising towards a proposed purchase of the site as a non-profit cooperative. The growing group of locals making this project happen share a common vision to collaboratively transform the space into a thriving activity hub to improve mental health and reduce social isolation by providing an open space for recreation and and connection. Uh, Marissa John Pillay is a community lawyer, a community broadcaster with experience in the arts, education and community development. And she joins me on the line today. Marissa, thanks for your time. No worries, Beth. Good to be here. Um, it's lovely to chat to you. Marissa, could you tell me a little bit about how this project first began? Well, it began for me, uh, actually noticing the space in my community. So I'd walked past it quite a few times. The place um, has been abandoned for about four years, I think. Uh, It was a former church in Kinder, as you said. Uh, And I've moved into the area a few years ago. Never really noticed the space. And all of a sudden, I did notice um, there was a kid and his granddad playing in the um, abandoned sandpit. And then I sort of walked in and and noticed the space and what it was, and it was kind of an calling to be um, a community gathering space. So that was for me, just noticing the space and um, appreciating for what it was. And soon after that, just a few days after that, the signs went up for a very short sale of the property. Um, there was like three weeks or something to get your offers in to, to um, purchase the site. So I kind of personally said, oh, well, good, goodbye place. <laughs> and um, and uh, just thought that at some point it would probably be developed as a lot of places are but um, that for me kept calling back to me and and, I, and then I got on the phone with the agent and, and found out what the um, it was going for and I, I realised that that collectively might be possible so then I started having conversations with others seeing if we could collaboratively put together a bid for the place and notice that a lot of other people had been thinking that this would be a great community space and a good community asset. Not only that, there's a huge history to the place as well. A lot of people have um, a connection to either the church or the kinder and uh, a lot of goodwill behind having this um, remain as a community asset. So that's sort of, like, I don't know what's bigger than a snowball, but it feels like it's, it's gotten big really quickly mm. and a lot of people have hopped on board. Mm. I think that's really wonderful. It does, you know, sounds like a real collective community effort. I'd I'd love to know what's that experience been like for you to connect with other locals kind of championing the same cause? 
I initially thought that it would be hard to develop trust with enough people in the local community to make this work. So I'm relatively new to the area. Plus, when I moved here, I had um, a two-year-old and a newborn, and now I've got another newborn. So I've got, like, three kids under five, and I didn't really have that much capacity to really connect with a lot of the things happening in the community. So I knew that I didn't really have those networks established already here. But I've often been in environments where I've had great connection to my local scene, my local neighborhood house and the people in my community. And I guess, yeah, I expected that I'd probably be drawing more from my own friendship networks to make this happen, which I initially started to do. And that worked quite well. But quite quickly when I realized there was such a groundswell of support for this idea locally, I kind of changed to really throw myself in as a newcomer, <laughs> like almost like a weird Pied Piper figure, <laughs> to, um, to start to connect and, and having to do that really rapidly, like in the space of a week, to make those trust connections locally and um, also be vulnerable to the fact that, you know, this is just my idea and I'm instigating this path of doing it, but a lot of other people will have their own opinions and ideas of how to go about things and everyone's got their blind spots as well so yeah just figuring that all out together so it has been it's been a wild ride Mm, I can imagine and you know you write that your kind of overall aim together is to improve mental health and reduce social isolation and they're goals that I think feel particularly relevant coming out of several lockdowns last year and you know due to these big changes in our collective way of life over the last 12 months. Do you think that more people in your local community are thinking about different ways to engage with their uh, local centres? Yeah, very much so. Uh, A lot of people are realising that there's a limit to online connection or craving that face-to-face experience. And funnily enough, even through the project, as has happened so far, there have been people who have you know, only known each other online on the you know on Facebook or even people at the same whose kids go to the same school in the same class they might have had kind of sideways interactions with each other but never really met each other mm. so that's a need I think in general but heightened by COVID for sure. Mm. And you've kind of spoken about this a little bit but it is going to be you know a multi-purpose community hub. What kinds of activities would you hope um, would would be be happening there? I hope that uh, people will develop the space according to what people want to come and share. So there's been a lot of offerings already of people sharing arts workshops, dance workshops, music, food, permaculture, um, music, theatre, and also making things. Uh, There's a space for a shed or even using older and new technologies, mending cafes. You can imagine like the range of suggestions that have been put forward. But I feel um, hopeful that we can create something that's got solid infrastructure that can support a range of uses and that people who um, have things to offer can have a space where they can actually um, continue that sharing and to, um, I guess, blossom with people being um, encouraged to think about what they have to share, whether it's something to, you know, um, 
come and run a workshop on or um, maybe a project that they think that um, it could be supported at this space. Mm. I love that a lot. It sounds like there's this real kind of co-creation, you know, ideas of, of how this will happen and, and what will happen there. Uh, is that is that right? Like, do you see this as kind of the way that this could be built is with in collaboration of the local community? Absolutely. Like, that's my personal vision. And uh, I think very few people have had experience of that really happening. More often people have you know, consultations and things sort of designed for you and it's almost sort of prepackaged. I think to have something quite minimalist that allows you to kind of, it's vulnerable to your, um, to your input and that you can kind of make it happen and also the idea that it almost need, needs you to exist in a way. I think those spaces are less common and um, it, I think there'll probably be a mixture of you know, programming that's more um, conventional and um, potential of the likes you might see at maybe a neighbourhood house and other um, maybe community shared spaces. But, um, yeah, I think I think that there's enough space, physical space and conceptual space in what we're building to allow for co-creation in, in lots of respects. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Marissa John Pillay, who is a community lawyer um, who is spearheading uh, a project to create uh, a, com- a community centre in Montmorency. Um, Marissa, I know that you have been doing a lot of fundraising and trying to kind of get this happening. Can you tell us where you're at at the moment with the project? Right, so we are at the pointy end or really the steep climb. It's when we kind of prove whether or not we can do this. So we've done a lot of groundwork since December in setting up how we want to fundraise for this project. We've got settlement, which is basically when we're due to purchase the property in full um, in just over a month. The 14th of June is the deadline. And uh, we've paid the deposit, but we need a, a significant amount to be able to finalise the sale. And at least 900000 of that has to be money that we're raising. Some of that will be refunded in GST and other and um, stamp duty potentially if we apply for it. But um, and essentially we need a significant amount <laughs> to settle the property and have that money up front and, and ready to be paid. So we've um, done lots of different um, uh, letterboxing around the neighbourhood, lots of conversations, and we're starting to have more and more momentum around that. And um, we've got... Uh, sort of 50 or 60 people who are willing to join our cooperative when it's set up and that number is growing. Uh, we've just said, finalised our um, not-for-profit cooperative uh, documents yesterday. And, uh, yeah, anyway, that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> we've got a month to go and we need to ensure that we have that full amount. At the moment, our fundraising, in terms of how much we've got, um, Confirmed is on the level of like two hundred thousand, so we've got like seven hundred thousand more to go. But um, we've got lots of sort of of a middle area of people sort of thinking about it and um, considering it, and uh, and some people only just hearing about it for the first time. So it's kind of terrifying, but on the other hand, it's not based on um, it's based on people's interest, and it's sort of us ensuring we can convert the people who are interested in the vision and are really supportive and then that core within that who 
also have the financial capacity to support this and make this kind of project happen, that honing in on those people right now and connecting them in a very easy way with us. <laughs> so that's, that's like kind of the, the focus at the moment. Um, and then after that, I think things will, will grow in a really great way. Mm, well, it does sound like it's gaining momentum in a really positive way. Can you tell me what the establishment of the cooperative means for the project? I think it's just exciting because we had to decide to form a co-op in the first place and a lot of thinking went into that. Establishing a co-op, I mean, um, that is a, a new thing for a lot of us involved in the project. It's kind of interesting that it's described, some people call people involved in the co-op cooperators, um, which is interesting, but uh, as a, as a organisational form, it's set up to really acknowledge the fact that together we can do things better than individuals. So I think it already sets up this sort of a flatter structure for members in a cooperative to really feel like we can put in together and whether or not you can contribute financially or in other ways, we can actually collectively own this, like a massive share house, Mm -hmm. and you can put in and build something that's greater than what you could have done just by yourself. And I think that philosophy comes through how a co-op is set up in terms of its values and principles, and I'm hopeful that that, um, yeah, I think that that will inspire behaviour along those lines as we go forward. Mm. I really love that idea of a, yeah, a collective share house. That's awesome. What do you think this space will mean uh, if it, you know, if this does, if this is able to take off, what do you think this space will mean for members of the Montmorency community? Um, I reckon it places locals or people who are connected to this um, space it creates a connection to sharing more generally, I think. So it has, it'll obviously have a benefit for specific people using the space, whether they're locals or whether they're people who love to visit Monty or come, come for this space. But I think the idea of sharing and the idea of um, seeing each other as part of sort of a fellow human and, and neighbours in a broader sense, I think that's quite a universal um, ideal, and I think this project is situated within that. So I think it kind of adds to the great things like this that happen in lots of places, and it just means that a great thing like this is happening here. And I feel that there's a lot of connection between an inspiration um, that can be gleaned from each other mm. from this local project and others similar around. Mm. I love that. Um, Marissa, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and for chatting to us all about this great work. Um, And, yeah, good luck with it. Yeah, appreciate that, Beth. Take it easy. We were just chatting there with Marissa John-Pillay speaking all about the Monty Hub project. You can find out more information on their website. Oh, it is almost time for me to get on out of here. I do want to say a big thank you to my guests who joined me this afternoon. 
I always love hearing about all the amazing projects that are going on in this town. A big thank you to Samira for joining to talk all about her incredible project, 13 Years. It is kicking off. Uh, is kicking off on Friday at West Space if you do want to go and check it out. And also I do want to say a big thank you to Marissa for joining me to talk all about the Montmorency Community Centre that they are trying to make happen. Some really amazing things happening out there. If you do want to find out more, you can head over to their website and find out more. It's called the Monty Hub Project. Uh, and for Samira, you can check out the West Space website. Do stay tuned to Triple R. Keep it locked to Triple R. I'll be back with you next Wednesday here on The Glass House. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.